Hello, you're listening to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest this week is Valina Beattie, Professor of Law at the West Virginia University College of Law, who is visiting at the University of Kentucky this semester. Valina's scholarship focuses on criminal law and wrongful convictions, and today we will discuss her new draft paper, The Overdose Homicide Epidemic, as well as maybe some of the other things she's doing in the criminal law area in West Virginia and, and here in Kentucky. So welcome, Valina. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Great to have you on, uh, on the station. Uh, so can we start with just the title, of, the title of your paper? What is The Overdose Homicide epidemic. What do those two things have to do with each other? Right. It seems surprising. Uh, but we see this trend where overdoses are being classified as homicides. And homicide means murder. Uh, so we actually see prosecutors charging people who share drugs with someone who overdoses, the person who shares the drugs and survives being charged with drug-induced homicide. And it doesn't matter whether they intended for their friend to die from an overdose of the drugs. Uh, it just matters that they shared the drugs and they're being charged for drug-induced homicide. So why is this important now? Is this something that's happening a lot? We've seen a spike in these prosecutions and in legislatures passing these statutes to create this crime of drug-induced homicide in response to the opioid crisis that we've seen, um, particularly as the opioid crisis has gone from prescription pills to heroin on the streets to heroin on the streets that's laced with fentanyl, uh, which has really led to a spike in overdoses, particularly in our communities in Appalachia. Right. So you've been seeing a lot of this then in the West Virginia, Tennessee, Southern Ohio, Kentucky areas? Absolutely. Uh, and West Virginia passed a statute last year uh, creating this drug-induced homicide charge. But federally, all federal prosecutors, which includes here in the Eastern District of Kentucky, can prosecute someone for drug-induced homicide. And again, the goal of this type of charge is to go after the high-level dealer who's causing these deaths. But the majority of these prosecutions are friends, <clears throat> are family members, are acquaintances who are sharing the drug and are addicts themselves. Okay, so this is a, this is a real, it sounds like this is a real problem in the area, but your, your, your paper gets at some complications or political complications specifically in how this relationship between overdoses and the homicide charges plays out on the ground. I thought maybe you could share a little bit about how that works and what you see the problem as being. Sure. So what a lot of people don't think about, um, and I, I get to because I, I see these cases, is death investigations. Who actually investigates a death to determine what the cause of death is and what the manner of death is? Is it a homicide? Is it an accident? Is it a natural cause of death? Or is it a suicide? Uh, and that job belongs to medical examiners who are um, trained medical professionals, and to coroners. And coroners are political um, office holders. So here in Kentucky, we elect our county coroners. So a county coroner needs to be a certain age, needs to leave it, live in the district, and that is it. So no other qualifications. So cities, urban areas, tend to have medical examiners someone who has a medical background, 
while rural communities, and we can think of rural communities in Kentucky, uh, rely on coroners who are um, esteemed members of the community and are politically elected, but don't have any background in this. So both of these people are going out and are deciding, oh, what's the cause of death? Oh, it's overdose. Okay, how do how do they decide that? Um, particularly in rural communities where they just don't have the money to do a toxicology report or to do an autopsy. The coroner, you know, may know the person who overdoses, looks at the surroundings in the apartment because most overdoses happen in private places. And says, "Oh, this is an overdose," and then the coroner gets to decide whether the death certificate says homicide or whether it says accident. So the coroner can label an overdose as a homicide. That's really interesting. So why would, in theory, the person filling out the death certificate fill it out one way or the other? Like, what would be the, the kind of the legal reason for calling a death a homicide or an overdose? Or is that a medical decision? How, how do you characterize that? Well, the National Association of Medical Examiners their standards allow for coroners and medical examiners to list on the death certificate either accident or homicide for an overdose, that the, the coroner uh, or the medical examiner can decide what to put on the death certificate. And what we see, for example, in Pennsylvania, uh, the head of the Coroner's Association in Pennsylvania um, has made statements to the press and to the public that he believes these overdoses are murder. So he's going to put homicide on the death certificate every time he comes to what he thinks is an overdose. Uh, and he sees this as important to prosecute these as homicide. Uh, it's not just a person overdosing. Uh, he believes it's important to find who he believes is responsible, so the person who shared the drugs, and to have accountability. And it's just this same old tough-on-crime kind of language that we've heard for decades that if we just incarcerate people and punish people enough, then they're going to stop. But addiction doesn't work that way. So if the person you're prosecuting is just another person who has a substance abuse disorder, they're going to... They're still going to be addicted, even if you put them in prison for up to 40 years. Interesting. So who, who ultimately makes the decision whether to charge someone or rather whether to treat an overdose as an accident versus a homicide? Is that decision ultimately made by the medical examiner or coroner? Or is somebody else making that decision? So the coroner gets to decide what goes on the death certificate and that the death certificate says homicide. Uh, but it's always up to the prosecutor and the prosecutor's discretion as to whether this is a crime and whether to charge it, whether to um, bring charges against an individual. So it's always the prosecutor. Uh, and I think I said this here in the Eastern District of Kentucky. On the federal level, we see a lot of prosecutions for drug-induced homicide, particularly, again, in the past few years when we've seen a spike in overdose deaths. Why do you think that is? As we have more and more people die from the opioid crisis, uh, more um, political leaders uh, want to make a difference and to stop the crisis, and some of them namely prosecutors, uh, and some coroners believe that the way to stop the opioid crisis is to prosecute people and to put users in prison. Um, 
I mean, we've seen that that didn't work with the crack cocaine epidemic and that people come out of prison and jail and they're still addicted. Um, but it, we still see prosecutors who are bringing these charges. They're trying to respond to the, the crisis, and that's the tool that they know. I think if we're going to save lives, we actually need to stop prosecuting people for homicide because what it does is it discourages people who are witnesses to the overdose from calling in and calling to 911 and getting naloxone. I mean, we have an antidote for an overdose to revive someone. It's naloxone. But uh, if witnesses don't call in because they're scared of being prosecuted, then they just watch that person die. Mm-hmm. So in your paper, you talk about the intersection between the coroner and the medical examiner role mm-hmm. in this process and the prosecutorial discretionary decision on whether or not to charge under the circumstances. Um, how do you see the the differences between those two playing out, if at all? In other words... Is there functionally or practically a difference between the relationship between medical examiners and prosecutors and and coroners and prosecutors? Are you seeing a dynamic that's that's worth commenting on there? Absolutely. Medical examiners have a medical background and medical examiners are performing the autopsy uh, and really determining the cause of death from examining the body, not just the circumstances, but actually examining the body because they're trained to do that. Um, And they're bringing scientific evidence to uh, these prosecutions. Now, of course, their, their ultimate job is public health, but their autopsy results can be used for prosecutors. But with county coroners, their death certificate, which is just a you know, a person like you or me who's going into a home where someone has died and is saying, oh, this looks like an overdose uh, and I'm going to call it a homicide because I think these overdoses should be stopped. And the best way to stop them is by prosecuting people and calling them murder. Um, my death certificate uh, as a coroner becomes, in a sense, scientific evidence for the prosecution to use to charge someone, mm. which is kind of crazy. Does the death certificate play a role at all in not just the decision whether or not to charge, but the sort of the proof process or in the, well, now we know everyone pretty much plea bargains rather than going going to trial. So in the plea bargaining, bargaining process or in the actual criminal process itself? Yeah. So by the time this case would get to trial, there would be an autopsy done. There would be a toxicology report to see what's in the decedent's bloodstream and see if there are any other, for example, drugs in the person's system or alcohol or supplements. Uh, because the prosecutor has the burden. If this case goes to trial, the prosecutor has the burden of firmly establishing that that one distributed drug was the cause of death. So not another drug in the system, not cocaine or an interaction with beer, but this one drug that was distributed. And that's a really tough burden to meet. Mm -hmm. So by the time we get to trial, there's going to have to be an autopsy report, a toxicology report. But long before we get there, this death certificate can be used for plea bargaining purposes. And we see a lot of defendants simply pleading guilty uh, and pleading guilty to these extreme charges. So in federal court, it's a mandatory minimum of 20 years 
And this applies to someone who just simply has a substance use problem and is sharing drugs. And frankly, we're going to be paying for him to be in prison for 20 years. He's going to get out on the other end. And who knows if he'll even have recovered from that um, substance abuse problem or not by that point. Right. So maybe we could drill down just a little bit on um, the point that you made about what the prosecutor actually has to prove under the circumstances, because that seems to get to this kind of overdose homicide distinction. And you point out in your paper, and and you just talked about it a little bit now, that, I mean, it sounds like the actual burden of proof is is relatively high. What exactly is it that they have to show? Yeah, so the prosecutors, if this case actually goes to trial, the prosecutors have to show that this individual distributed drug was the but-for cause of death. That's the language that the Supreme Court has used. And, And what does that mean? That means that this singular drug caused the death. So not, oh, this drug and beer or this drug and a supplement or, oh, there's also cocaine in the person's system. It's this specific one substance. And it is very hard to find a forensic pathologist or a toxicologist who is going to be able to pull out this one drug or this one substance and say that's the but-for cause of death if there are other drugs in the person's system. And we know that a lot of these overdoses now are polysubstance overdoses. We're talking about the legal standards for uh, proving that a, a an overdose is actually a homicide for for criminal law purposes. But I wanted to take a step back and take another look at the relationship between coroners and medical examiners, because you spent a lot of time discussing that relationship in your paper and how it might affect the prosecution process. Yeah, so studies that have been done by the National uh, Association of Medical Examiners name show that a majority of medical examiners and coroners have been pressured at some point to change their findings by prosecutors or by other public officials. Uh, And even when they've resisted, they've um, continued to face this pressure. Uh, We saw in California recently a uh, medical examiner who was very well-regarded and uh, well-known for Uh, do his research on traumatic brain injury and football players, uh, that he finally quit from the uh, office, his coroner's office that he was part of, because he was responding and responsive to a coroner who is also a sheriff. So in California, the coroners can also be sheriffs. So they are the police officers investigating the crimes uh, who was pressuring him to change his results. Uh, so we we see that coroners and medical examiners can be pressured uh, to provide medical evidence that supports a prosecution. Um, now, of course, that depends on the coroners and the prosecutors and what area you live in. But uh, medical examiners generally can be more resistant to that pressure because they're uh, they have a scientific background and they're doing scientific evidence gathering by doing these autopsies, while a coroner is a political position and is trying to be responsive to the people and the people who have elected him. And again, if he believes that the way to respond to this overdose crisis is by greater prosecutions, then there's political pressure for him to fill out a death certificate that says homicide. All right. So maybe you could talk a little bit 
uh, about some of the stories you tell in your paper about about how corners actually work in practice because I, you know every, everyone sees the signs you know elect so and so for for corner but I, I think a lot of people don't really have a good sense of kind of on the ground what they do once they get elected you know how do they become a corner how do they learn how to do their job and and what actually happens so uh, i i think a lot of people don't actually know about coroners and the importance of this role that the coroner is the starting place for these death investigations and for public health information but also for our criminal justice system this is the starting point and coroners in general just simply have to be of age and from the area and elected. So, and by of age, you mean? So in Indiana, for example, there was a 17-year-old um, who graduated from high school early and who became county coroner. So you have a 17-year-old who's going into whatever death scene and determining what the cause of death and the type of death or manner of death are. Um I will say here in Kentucky, there's a coroner and medical examiner system. It's a mixed system. And that the medical examiners provide training for the coroners every year. So that is um, incredibly helpful. And I wish that were more of a standard across the country. Um, But that said, uh, just in the um, news last week here in Lexington was a coroner who said to the paper that he just always says the cause of death is um, heart failure. Because even if you're shot with a gun, you still die from your heart stopping. So he just always says heart failure. And I don't think anyone with medical training would or a medical examiner would do that. Right. So it sounds like we might have some bigger picture concerns about the continued wisdom of a kind of elected coroner system as opposed to a more formalized, appointed medical professional medical examiner system. Yeah. And I'm not new to criticizing the um, the existence of a coroner system. Since the 1920s, there's been criticism of a coroner system because we've really brought it over from when our country was founded from England. And now I mean, we're, we're so much more advanced with our medical knowledge that we, we really could have an effective death investigation system with medical examiners. So if there's been criticism of this system since the 1920s, that's know, going on 100 years now, why does it persist? Generally, coroners uh, continue to hold these positions in rural areas and rural communities, sometimes rural communities where there's not a, a doctor in the county, where there's not someone who has medical training or someone who has medical training who's willing to, to do the job. So we really see this as a problem in rural areas. Uh, and that's what really upsets me with um the use of coroners in Appalachia in particular. I mean, we see federal grants, the majority of federal grants, like two-thirds of federal grants go to urban areas, not to help rural areas. And as rural communities continue to lose population, they are continuing to lose that kind of funding. Uh, And the resources to be able to have a medical examiner, to be able to have a professional to do this kind of work. And you don't think about death investigations as important, but when you realize how many people in our communities, including rural communities, are being incarcerated for drug-related crimes, it becomes really important. Right. Well, it seems like with the 
impact that the uh, the opioid crisis has had, especially in especially in rural areas. It seems like it's sort of the perfect storm with coroners, uh, as it were, to be you know interjecting a lot of problems along the the sort of accident homicide continuum that that you identify have you seen that problem increasing uh during the course of this epidemic absolutely I mean, we we see greater and greater prosecutions uh more and more of them um and again I mean, it, Having these prosecutions, having these charges is discouraging witnesses from calling in when they're witnessing an overdose. And we have good Samaritan laws that protect uh, eyewitnesses from low-level charges like possession. But once you get to drug-induced homicide, they're not protected from those charges. So if I share drugs with someone and that person starts overdosing, if I call 911, I can be charged with drug-induced homicide for sharing the drug with the individual. And that really is dissuading people from calling in and means more people are dying. Right. So it sounds like from a from a big picture sense, what you're suggesting is that we really ought to be rethinking and reevaluating the wisdom of having these kinds of overdose homicide statutes in in the first place, in the sense that they're at the very least overbroad and and maybe creating perverse incentives or encouraging people not to intervene when Ideally, we would really want them to. But that might also be a really difficult shift. It seems like there's a lot of kind of political support for those kinds of statutes. Do you see ways we might be able to intervene on the margins uh, by thinking about this sort of corner medical examiner uh, uh, dialectic that you talk about in your paper uh, and the choice whether to go with one or the other or thinking about, you know, additional training or providing additional context for coroners, for example? Sure. Just learning more about our county coroners, asking them what they do, particularly when we're coming up on election season. Um, how do they do their jobs? Um how do they respond to the overdose crisis? How are they responding to overdoses? Learning more about what they're doing. Definitely encouraging more training. Uh, so even if we do have a coroner system, having coroners who are trained by medical examiners is uh, a large improvement. And then we have legislatures that are passing uh, smaller changes. So Mississippi passed a statute that said um, that the medical examiners, and this was focused on medical examiners, were going to be connected with forensic pathologists at the medical school so they could keep up on the most recent research. Uh, and just, I think two weeks ago, the California legislature passed a, a statute that counties with more than 500,000 inhabitants, which I would think of as urban, but um, counties with more than 500,000 inhabitants uh, have to have a medical examiner system, not a coroner system. Uh, unfortunately, in my eyes, the governor vetoed that last week. Mm -hmm. In states like Kentucky or West Virginia or other states you might have familiarity with, is there anything like a set of statewide standards for how coroners ought to go about categorizing causes of death or framing the findings that they make? Or is it more of a kind of catch-as-catch-can, one coroner's discretion at a time kind of thing? There are standards by the National Association of Medical Examiners. Um, 
And those standards for overdoses do say that a coroner can decide uh, on labeling an overdose as an accident or as a homicide. So it is at the discretion of the coroner. That said, um, name this association has been really important with legislation trying to limit the influence of police or prosecutors on coroners, on medical examiners, uh, and trying to keep those separate. Because the death investigation process and coroners and medical examiners, their primary goal and purpose is public health. You know, is so we can all uh, have better public health, not necessarily to uh, be part of the criminal justice system. Hmm. Do you think it might help to have a kind of a more formalized distinction between overdose and homicide uh, in terms of how coroners go about categorizing it? Or do you think that the discretionary nature is just something that, that can't, practically speaking, be changed? Oh, I think it could be changed. And I just think it hasn't been looked at closely. I mean, these drug-induced homicide charges are... Uh, some of them have been on the books for a long time, but most of them are new. Uh, and we're seeing these as newly created charges. Uh, I'll just quickly say I have a client, um, Mr. Ashbell, uh, in West Virginia who um, you know, bought $60 worth of heroin, shared it with three other people, and then one of those people overdosed. And he um, was charged with drug-induced homicide. He immediately came forward and pled guilty and took responsibility for it. Um, but he got a 20-year mandatory sentence for that. Um, so... All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on on the show, Valina. I was wondering if there was anything you wanted to sort of parting words you wanted to leave our our listening audience with uh, about this seems really troubling and and timely issue. Most of us never pay attention to coroners or medical examiners. Uh, So really, again, in this election season, I would think about the coroner positions and what that really means for your community. Thank you so much.